All right, so welcome back. Uh, Ephesians today. Uh, who would like to take a stab at the message of Ephesians in 25 words or less? You don't have to, but... Okay, no takers. That's okay. Um, I draw your attention to this tiny book by great watchman Nee, Chinese brother. Uh, and it is called Sit, Walk, Stand. And it is a little commentary on Ephesians. And this is actually where I got the idea for these little three-word summaries of each letter. Uh, or maybe of even each book of the Bible, but certainly for the little epistles, uh, it, it's doable to, to do it that way. And so sit, walk, stand. Now that comes from three verses. Uh, the first one is Ephesians 2, verse 6, where it says basically that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, then in uh, verse chapter 4, verse 1, it says that we should walk worthy of the calling to, to which we have been called. And then, as I think probably everyone knows, in chapter 6, uh, specifically in verses 12, uh, no, verses 14 and 13, 13 and 14, we have this word stand. Um, when you've done all to stand, stand. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, So sit, walk, stand. And what Brother Nee brings out is the idea that uh, when we enter the Christian life, the first step that we must take is not actually a step at all, it's sitting. In other words, you must rest in the finished work of Christ. That's step one. You can't go out and start doing things. Uh, you can't... Uh, begin your walk. You can't walk is chapter 4. Sitting is chapter 2. So you can't start walking until you have first sat. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But then once you rest in that finished work and you uh, are, what I like to say is, if we're seated in, heaven, in, in heavenly places, then when we are on earth, we should have a bird's eye view of the world. And so we, all of the cares of life, we should be looking at those cares of life from a bird's eye view. In other words, they shouldn't be cares of life at all. Because we should be thinking eternally. Uh, chapter 4 again is where we pick up the idea of walking. Uh, and there is a, uh, certainly a very practical component to walking. We must walk this thing out. And I've made this point several times already. It's not just about raising your hand and going down the aisle and saying a little prayer. It has to be walked out. Otherwise, you're not showing that what your little decision for Christ has actually meant anything. Uh, and then at the end, we have stand. And so, uh, we are standing against uh, the enemy. And so, uh, to, to once again briefly summarize this... Um, the key words, sit, coming from chapter 2, verse 6, sit refers to our position in Christ. Walk refers to our life in the world. And stand refers to our attitude to the enemy. That's quoting out of 
Watchman Nee's book here. Again, the key word sit, walk, and stand. Sitting is referring to our position in Christ. Walking is referring to our life in the world. And standing is referring to our attitude toward the enemy. So, we can certainly think of Ephesians as sit, walk, stand. I think that's a great way to kind of thread through and keep the, the entire message uh, cohesive. However, I'm not sure that sit, walk, stand is the best three-word description of the main idea, or in other words, the forest, for the audience uh, of the, the intended audience of the letter initially, in other words, the church at Ephesus. I think sit, walk, stand is probably as good or better than any uh, three-word description we would want for us, the modern-day reader. But when I read Ephesians, and I'm thinking in terms of receiving this letter from Paul in the first century, the thing that jumps out to me as a main idea is Gentiles are in. The church at Ephesus is primarily Gentile. Again, we're in that modern-day Turkey uh, area, Ephesus. Uh, And uh, it's mainly Gentiles. And, of course, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Uh, And so, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, so, he's speaking to this mainly Gentile audience. And his main idea from what I can see, is that the Gentiles have become part of the promise uh, and they are able to receive the blessing, the promise, the, 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 uh, the promise of salvation. Um, so I, I think that's the main idea and we'll see that. All of that is in the first three chapters, which are the more theological half Uh, And then we get the therefore, Ephesians 4 verse 1, which which is the walk, therefore walk. And so, Gentiles are in, now that you know you're in, therefore go walk. And so that's that's the main idea, and so let's get into it here in chapter 1. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, because we are looking for the forest and not the trees. Uh, Later on, we're actually going to find that that New Living Translation really helps us uh, when we get to chapter 6, and I'll show you that in a minute. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God. So he launches into this kind of... uh, um, Praise to God, blessing the Lord for what He has done, uh, praising the Ephesians for uh, He's very happy about their faith. It it, it starts like most of His letters, praising God and praising the church for their faithfulness, and, and He is so excited that people are getting the message. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. 
He loved us and chose us in Christ. Why? To be holy. It's not an option. And it's all over the place. And it will continue to keep coming back. This is the reason why God chose us in Christ. It's to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered, us, has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us His mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill His own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance and He makes everything work out according to His plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. Gentiles are in. Jews came first, and now the Gentiles are uh, part of the game. Uh, The Lord has seen fit to allow all people to uh, come into relationship with the Father if we believe in the Son. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised long ago. Verse 14, the Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Now watch. We have this opening Remark, which is again, we praise God for who He is, and and I'm also praising you, the Church of Ephesus, for for your faithfulness, and and I'm so excited that you are walking into this promise. Now the response to that from Paul is, I'm praying uh, constantly. When we, um, when we come to give ourselves to God, when we come to see God for who He is, when we come to have a love for others uh, and be excited about them coming into faith in Christ, our response should be then not to just sit back and take it easy because everything's all cool but rather to press forward in prayer. That's where prayer starts. Maybe not starts, but it doesn't stop. Let's put it that way. I pray for you constantly asking God, that this this idea is going to come back, by the way, that prayer is the response. So I just want you to see that. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those He called, His holy people who are, ri- who are His rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. 
This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Paul prays that we'll understand that. Because it is incredibly great. Yo. You see that? That's big. Now he is far above, verse 21, any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Beginning of chapter 2, we begin to get a uh, first 10 verses or so. Uh, we get a little shift in, in the, uh, the topic, in the theme. Uh, but we get really to the core of the gospel. This is a, uh, the gospel is summed up here in these first 10 verses of chapter 2. And it goes like this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin. Wait a minute. You used to live in sin. I think there's an inference that we can make from that statement. That statement implies that now we should not be living in sin. Hello? See, it doesn't say you used to live in sin and now you still live in sin, but it's okay because Jesus paid the price. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't come anywhere close to saying that. That's silly. That is 20, late 20th century, early 21st century, watered down, non-gospel. But what it does say is, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Notice obedience is a huge piece of this. When you obey... That is when things begin to be right with you. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ, here it is, and seated us, sit, walk, stand, and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Now, in these last few verses here, there's actually a play on words, and we lose it in the New Living Translation, but the play on words is the word works. Because what it says is, we can't boast, verses 8 and 9, we can't boast about our works. Okay? Then in verse 10, it says, we are God's workmanship created for good works. So, we don't boast about works, number one. In other words, works don't save us. 
But number two, we are His workmanship. In other words, we are His work. And we were created to do good works. This sums up the concept of the idea that we are not saved by works, and yet we still have to do works. See? People get the idea that because I'm not saved by works, that means I don't have to do any works. No, that's silly. Uh, that is exact opposite of what has been portrayed in verses 8, 9, and 10 here. Alright, now, <clears throat> starting in verse 11, I think that this is really the main idea. Uh, he's already hinted at it in chapter 1, but now he really comes back and nails it down. Verse 11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near." Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles, verse 19, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are His house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. You see how that entire back half of chapter 2 is talking about Gentiles are in. And he continues in chapter 3 with the same idea. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending His grace to you Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God revealed Himself uh, God himself revealed his mystery, mysterious plan to me. As you read what I've, I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. That's the main idea of Ephesians. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving Him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God creator of all things had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this, verse 10, was to use 
the church to display His wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was His eternal plan which He carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in Him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Now watch this. We saw it in chapter 1. We see it now again in chapter 3. When I think of all this, I pray. The response to all of this truth that he is saying in these first three chapters, all of this big theology, is that he prays. When I think of all this, verse 13, uh, 14, excuse me, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the Creator of everyth- everything in heaven and on earth, and watch what he actually prays. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his Spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. I'm going to switch translations real quick because I want to bring out a couple things here. I just want them to really sock it to you. Um, Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Woof. Paul wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God. Are you filled with all the fullness of God? I mean, I wouldn't say I am. There's more. There's more. Then what? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Let's read that again. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Okay, I can buy that. According to the power that works in us. Uh, he's going to do all those things above anything I can imagine through the power that works in me. Not just out in the Aurora Borealis or something. Through us! To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the halfway point. The theology, so to speak, is over. The practical comes on the back half. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. We get practical. Because of all this theology, I'm, I'm thinking there's a therefore coming. Let's see what it says. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The therefore is walking. New Living says lead a life, but I really like walking because it really uh, gives you uh, a picture. Not just other translations say live. Live worthy of the calling. No, walk worthy of the calling. Walk uh, gives you the idea that I have a direction, I'm going somewhere, and there's a pattern. Walking is a pattern. You see. 
I would not take two steps forward and two steps back and two steps forward and two steps back. You would not call that walking. You'd probably call it rocking or something. Okay? Walking is a specific pattern and it has direction. You're going somewhere. When you walk a far enough distance, you should be able to turn around and see that you're no longer where you were. And again, Watchman Nee, sit, walk, stand. Watchman Nee views this as the second big key word. First, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In other words, I'm resting in the finished work, number one. I can't walk before I sit. But I do have to then begin to walk. And the walking describes what it is that I'm supposed to be doing in this earth um, with respect to my relationship to God and to others. Again, on the back side we see that standing is what I'm supposed to do in relation to the enemy. Okay. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to, with which you were called. Let's flip back over to New Living. Let's see what it says. Verse 2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you have been called to the glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However, He has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the Scriptures say when He ascended to the heights, He led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to His people. Uh, it, notice it says ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended. Okay, So the descent is the idea that Christ came to earth. Okay, um, This is coming from heaven to earth. The, the incarnation... Um, and so he descended and then he ascended the same one verse 10 who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might so that he might fill the entire universe with himself now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church so he says he gave gifts these are the gifts the apostles the prophets the evangelists and the pastors and teachers their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, Measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of His body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. This is verse 17, and we're starting into now, um, real quick here, we're going to get into some of the two don'ts. 
So you don't list. Don't do these things. These things are not becoming of a person, whether it's Jew or Gentile, a person who has come into the knowledge of Christ, a person who is, quote-unquote, saved, should not be doing these things. Don't live like the Gentiles do. They are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from Him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Verse 30, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. One thing about this, if you look at verse 30, remember He has identified you as His own. Uh, you know, eventually we'll get to 1 Corinthians and it talks about, he talks about, are you not carnal? So he's talking to the church and he says, you're carnal. Which tells me that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. But it also tells me that um, that carnal Christian cannot stay carnal. Um, carnal, by the way, meaning fleshly, or in other words, I am the type of person who just gives in to my own uh, personal uh, 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 human desires and passions. Uh, and I am not crucifying that but rather, and, and living according to what God wants me to do, living by the Spirit, but I'm uh, following my own passions and desires. That's carnal. And so I want to get this idea across that, remember, he has identified you as his own. He's talking to the church. He's saying, Paul is saying, as far as I know, you guys are saved. See? And since you're saved, since he's identified you as, your, as his own, you've got to put to death these other things. And, um, and then what happens is, now that you've heard that warning... If you don't put to death those other things, then you prove by the fact that you are really not following after the Spirit, but you're following after your own self, that you're not His. But if you put to death these things, once you hear the message, you believed in Jesus, now what? Paul says, stop doing bad stuff. Now that you realize, oh, you mean I actually have to do stop doing these things? Well, if you're truly His, you'll stop. 
And if you don't stop, you know that emoji with the teeth that goes straight across? Don't be that person. You have to put to death the works of the flesh. You have to. I think we've already talked about in other sessions that we don't try harder to do that. The key to... uh, We did talk about it in Colossians for sure. Set your mind on the things above. You do not overcome sin by looking at the sin. You don't overcome sin by trying harder. You overcome sin by looking at the solution, which is, say, looking at Jesus, looking at uh, the things above. Set your mind on the things above, and then He begins to do the work. It is progressive. So, uh, you know, if you mess up, uh, you don't beat yourself up, but you do have a grief uh, that, that, that stays with you that, that, that until you overcome that thing, you are constantly in repentance and saying, Lord, I really do want to change this thing. Please help me. All right. Chapter 5. We're almost there. We're still talking about walking. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are His dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. You know, I think a lot of TV would fall into this. Or, you know, internet nonsense, YouTube stuff. Um, And the more I walk through this, the more I realize that there are just certain things that push the envelope that that I just, I'm going to draw back from that. I'm gonna, I believe that my life from this point forward will be a continual drawing back more and more from, uh, from those kinds of things. Uh, I think it will get more and more consecrated. At least I, I hope it will. Um, because you get to a point where you just don't need it anymore. Um, things that you used to find funny or used to find pleasurable... Uh, just become kind of turnoffs, and uh, that's that's the that's the spirit of the Lord growing in you and pushing out uh, these other things where there's not room for them. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Verse five: You can be sure that no immo- look at this now; it's not optional. No immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Period. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. Uh Uh-oh. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine, verse 10, what pleases the Lord. Ooh. I just saw that. That's interesting. That just jumped off the page. Not sure I've ever really seen that. I think it's because I don't read New Living very often. (laughs) Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Wow. What a verse. That's the whole verse. That's cool. I like that. 
Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful uh, even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret because their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. And for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. But like those who are wise, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Um, Drinking is a big issue nowadays. Uh, People, uh, what was, what was, seemed to be uh, the norm 30, 40, 50 years ago is no longer the norm. And uh, people flirt with this line. Now, I'm not going to get into that, except to say this. Drunkenness is very clear. You can't do it. Okay? So, um, at the very least, we don't want to flirt with that line. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to read this next part, but I want you to see the structure of it. You can read it yourself, but it, 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 this will just, you can just see the whole next chapter and a half or so, what, what this looks like. Verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, if you've been around church for any length of time, which I think all of you have, uh, you have to have heard a sermon on Ephesians 5, Husbands and Wives. Okay, wives submit, husbands love. Wives submit, husbands love. And that is what it says. But notice, it's in the context of this greater thing, which is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. But what does it mean? Submit to one another. How do, does, the, does the wife not love the husband? Of course she does. So the wife submits and loves. The husband loves and submits. Submit to one another, verse 21. The question is not, wives submit, husbands love. The question is, how does the wife submit and how does the wife love? And how does the husband submit and how does the husband love? It's the how. And it's in there. You can read it for yourself. Okay, but we're all submitting to each other, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Now, let me make it clear. I do believe that the husband is the head of the house. Okay, so don't go off and say that I said some kind of egalitarian thing. I'm not saying that at all, but it's in the how. Okay, so wives submit, husbands, uh, 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 everyone submit one to another, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Next chapter, children to parents, fathers to children, in a way, fathers submit to children. If it, what it says is, fathers, do not provoke, provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. There's a sense in which the father submits to the child. and not Clearly, the father has authority over the child. What I'm saying is, you're always thinking about the child's best interests. That's a form of submission. You're doing what's best for that child. Okay? Slaves to masters, but then also masters to slaves. 
See? Masters, don't get a big head and feel like you're better than everybody else. That's a paraphrase. Okay? That's New Living paraphrase, all right? Uh, don't threaten them. Treat them in the same way. In other words, we need to treat everybody like, like anybody else, okay? Uh, you know, this, this relationship, which, of course, is uh, it's a different relationship in that first century setting to uh, we don't have this relationship at all today, in America at least, um, at least not legally. Um, but there, there's a different setting there. Certainly we can take anything about slaves and masters and apply it to the workplace. And so uh, 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 submit to that employer. And if you're an employer, submit, in a sense, to the employee. In other words, treat them with respect, treat them with honor and so forth. That's a real person. That's your brother. Now, the final step, which is stand. This is our response to the enemy. It's still practical, but it's specifically how we are supposed to approach the enemy. And I want to bring out one thing here, and we'll get to it here. Let me read it first. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Hmm. You never heard it that way, did you? See, New Living helps us on this one, actually. Because, uh, again, if you've been around church long, you have to have heard a sermon. I've heard this sermon preached at least ten times. Uh, when you've done everything to stand, just stand, brother. If there's nothing left for you to do, you just stand. That's all I have left to do, stand. It's like a weakling, uh, like you, you've, you've gone all the way through everything you know to do, and the only thing left to do is stand. That is absolutely not what this is saying. The standing, that word stand, carries with it a connotation of victory. As if you are uh, kind of putting your foot on the chest of your enemy. Standing. When you've done all these things, you will be victorious, is another way of saying it. See? Put on all the armor. Why? To resist the enemy in the time of evil. After the battle, you'll be victorious. You'll be standing firm. Now watch. Stand your ground. And here's how to put on all the armor. The belt of truth. The body armor of God's righteousness. That's cool. Body armor. Okay. Very 21st century. Put, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on your salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've, if, if you never heard that preaching in youth group, I mean, you had a bad youth pastor. You know what I mean? Uh, we've heard this over and over and over. But I want you to see two things. First, standing does not mean I'm, I'm barely making it and I'm just, I, I can do nothing left but stand. It means you have done everything you're supposed to do and therefore you will be victorious. Uh, it is not a wishy-washy statement. It's a finality statement. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, 
it's an encouragement. Okay? That's the, second, that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see is in verse 18. Because nobody ever reads the verse 18. They stop with the sword of the Spirit because that's where all the little armor stops. But it doesn't stop there. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. See, we don't just do these putting on of the armor and you know wake up every morning and do this calisthenics. Okay, All the armor is great. It's in there for a reason. But we can't forget praying. That's right there with it. So we do all the, the armor of God and we pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion, staying alert and persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And when we do all of those things, we will be victorious. We will be standing. And there's no question about it. That's Ephesians 6. That's what it means stand. So sit. You can't walk without first resting in the uh, finished work of Christ, seated in the heavenly places, bird's eye view. Stop thinking about the things of the world and getting all stressed out. You have a bird's eye view. Seated, sit, then walk. We must walk worthy of the calling. It is not optional. And finally, if you do all the things that you're supposed to do in terms of spiritual warfare, you will be victorious. You will be standing. That is the message of Ephesians.